Hello from the World Economic Forum in Geneva and welcome to this great Reset Initiative Dialogue. We have a fantastic group of contributors today to look at how we begin to restart the global economy. From Addis Ababa, we'll be joined by Prime Minister Ahmed. From London, by the Governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey. Uh, from New York, by Editor-at-Large at the Financial Times, Gillian Tett. <coughs> Uh, Afsana Bishloss joins us from Washington, D.C., the founder and chief executive officer of Rock Creek, and from uh, Tsinghua University in Shanghai, but actually uh, this evening, his time in Beijing, uh, Professor uh, Ning Zhu. So uh, we'll also have my colleague Sadia Zahidi, who heads all our economic and society work joining too. So a great lineup on today's call, uh, which is going to be chaired by my colleague, uh, the president of the World Economic Forum, Berger Brenda. Berger, over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Adrian, and thank you to all of you uh, for joining us again on this platform that we have been running now uh, for months. Uh, we have more than a thousand companies that have joined the COVID uh, platform. No, we are also moving into the mood of uh, looking at uh, what would a great reset look like, how to restart a global engine, how to get out of the recession. And we have a great uh, cause today uh, to discuss this. If you look at the stock markets, it seems like we're faced with maybe the shortest recession in history. But um, unfortunately, as the World Economic Forum, I think we have to caveat uh, that a bit. Um, we are faced with numbers for emerging economies, and we're going to touch on this also with the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, that emerging economies are at this point, looking at its uh, first really contraction of the economies for the first time in six decades. Um, so these are uh, staggering numbers. The World Bank came out also with numbers uh, yesterday that are concerning more than 100 million people will uh, move into extreme uh, poverty uh, in the coming uh, year. And we see also that um, we are faced, according to the OECD, with the worst recession in 100 years. I don't know if they included uh, the depression here. I hope not. Maybe we have to find a new word, something between a recession and depression. But today we're going to look at what will it take uh, to stimulate the economy? How can we best make sure that this recession is as short as possible? So far, nine trillion U.S. dollars are made available in governmental funds uh, to bridge this. Uh, Prime Minister uh, Abiy Ahmed, uh, my friend, uh, brother, you're with us uh, in Addis. We know that uh, you have uh, done a lot as Prime Minister in a short time uh, in Ethiopia, uh, one of uh, the largest uh, countries uh, population-wise, but also size-wise, uh, on the continent. You made peace with Eritrea. You let out thousands of uh, political prisoners, but there are big, of course, uh, ethnical challenges in your country. And now uh, you got this COVID crisis on top of what you uh, had also when it came, uh, came uh, to um, getting uh, the economy started. You have in an article, Prime Minister, called for a better G. 20 coordination. It needs to be a more concerted actions also to support uh, the emerging economies. Have you seen any positive 
feedback or any action walking of the talk related to your appeal? Thank you, Grant. Uh, indeed, uh, I've written a few times on this point. I consider this painful global pandemic uh, to be complex, adaptive challenge in a connected and interdependent world. A complex and adaptive challenge cannot be solved by individual countries alone. It can only be addressed through Madamar or collective action and global cooperation. I have said before that we cannot end this pandemic unless we end it in every continent and every country will be truly safe only when everyone is safe. Otherwise, there will be an ever-present threat of uh, a second and third wave. Fighting this pandemic is uh, both a shared interest and a shared responsibility. I also believe that the current global landscape has created a new moral uh, moment in history. What I mean by this is that there is a profound hunger for global leadership that can um, exercise moral imagination and moral um, courage on behalf of the common good. And already uh, there are good examples of effective global cooperation. For example, uh, the recent successful uh, pledging conference for Gavi gives us uh, reason for hope when uh, a safe and effective vaccine is developed, Gavi will ensure it is uh, produced rapidly at scale and made available for all people in all countries, free of charge as a public good. Nevertheless, we still require greater cooperation at a global scale. The, G the G20 uh, as a main forum for international economic cooperation should be at the forefront and provide global leadership. And I see three important areas for more coordinated global action. Firstly, I believe G20 members should call a summit and evaluate the current global response. For example, it is in the interest of all nations to minimize supply chain disruption, uh, to discipline raising barriers to trade so that economies can recover quickly. G20 also need to take additional steps to make sure national confrontation among big economies do not come in the way of providing collective response to the global pandemic. Global coordination is also needed in uh, development and equitable distribution of vaccines. Secondly, G20 should use all available policy, policy tools to support low-income countries. The emergency response by international monetary uh, fund and to a lesser extent by the World Bank is a step in the right direction. But it is far from being sufficient in terms of what's required to address the health and economic disruption. Both IMF and World Bank should be allowed to secure more resources through recapitalization or other means so that they can deploy it to the um, most vulnerable countries. G20 should also encourage IMF to revisit 
its resource access policy set in a percent of membership quota so that low-income countries could benefit from its support. As you all know, the current quota limitation makes IMF uh, constrained and expanding its loan to low-income countries. Finally, in addition uh, to fast disbursement of existing resource, G20 can do more in uh, expanding the scope and the scale of uh, current debt relief initiatives in support of uh, low-income countries. Thank you uh, so much, Prime Minister. And I think uh, these were very, very concrete action points that is important for us also to bring into the process we have now with the Great Reset in the run-up to our annual meeting in Davos that uh, Professor Schwab just announced last week. One uh, follow-up question to you, Prime Minister. Um, will we see more coordinated action uh, on behalf of Africa, more uh, trade? among uh, African countries, because we know this continent trades very limited with each other. And that's, I guess, why we're also seeing this uh, African single market uh, being uh, established. Well, uh, the first point that uh, I would make is quite an obvious one. International trade and cooperation make economies more resilient. I believe we should resist the urge to roll back to the gains of a multilateral trading system. We should resist isolationism. However, the supply chain disruptions that we witnessed with the advent of the pandemic and the unfortunate difficulty that uh, low-income countries face to obtain medical supplies will further give impetus to existing regional trade integration efforts. In um, a post-COVID Africa, existing trade, trades in uh, trends and uh, trade in investment in, uh, in regional integration through the African Continental Free Trade Agreement will further be intensified and uh, entrenched. The CFTA paves the way for Africa with 1.2 billion people and a cumulative GDP of $2.5 trillion to become the world's largest common market. In this context, there is a pressing need to reduce the continent's high trade dependency on non-African partners. The CFTA will also help facilitate the particular issue by uh, dismantling tariff and non-tariff barriers as much as possible and intensifying the economic re regionalization process that have now begun. You know, Brent, as uh, it, it stands, Africa is uh, the, the least integrated continent. Intra-African trade accounts for less than 16% of the continent's total trade. And therefore, in post-COVID world, once fully operational, the CFTA could uh, boost intra-African trade significantly and aiding economic recovery. Thank you uh, so much, uh, Prime Minister, and thank you for uh, your leadership. We know that uh, uh, Ethiopia is trying its best uh, to fight also uh, COVID so far. 
the numbers look uh, pretty good. But as I mentioned in the beginning, nine trillion US dollars is uh, dispersed to stimulate uh, global economies uh, and economies. But of course, um, African countries have less of a fiscal uh, space here. So, um, Prime Minister, we, we wish you uh, all the best and uh, thank you for your very insightful uh, comments also on Africa and the emerging uh, economies. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brent. So uh, then uh, we uh, move um, back to uh, Europe uh, to Governor Andrew uh, Bailey um, of uh, Bank of England. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Um, I think one question um, we all uh, are reflecting on is the how the crisis has affected the financial uh, sector, because this is very different uh, from 2007, 2008, the fall of Lehman Brothers in September 2008. The financial sector seems, and the bank seems much more robust now. But no, we are also going to see in the next quarters that companies are going to lose money. And um, I wonder uh, how uh, and what kind of role uh, the financial sector now can play uh, in restarting uh, the global economy on top um, of uh, the fiscal stimulus that we have seen. Well, thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to, to discuss this is an important issue. Um, I think, first of all, you're, you're right. I think all the evidence we have uh, to date is that the post-financial crisis reforms uh, to banking regulation have put the banking system in a position where it is, A, much more resilient, be therefore much more able to support uh, recovery and policies going forwards. Uh, and as a key part of that, a point that we at the Bank of England have emphasized very strongly, that the best way that the banking system can aid that process and aid, frankly, uh, making this recession uh, as, as tolerable as it can be is to continue lending. And that to me is a testament to the success of, I think, of the reforms uh, that you know, were put in place over the last decade. I would, however, introduce sort of two notes, however, on this. One, of course, no system is infinitely resilient. We have to be honest about this. That is why we did a, what we think are a desktop stress test of the major UK banks to coincide with our quarterly monetary policy report in May. And we will keep doing that work to assess uh, how, as, as we see how this, uh, how the COVID impact unfolds, we'll keep doing that because you have to keep revisiting that question. But I think, you know, so far so good, and it puts the banking system in a position to support the economy rather than the other way around, of course, as we saw a decade ago. The second thing I would say, however, is this, that we've seen, of course, and, and there's no surprise to this in my view, but one of the responses to the financial crisis of a decade ago was a relative shift of financial intermediation from the banking system to the non-banking system. But the non-banking system has got relatively larger. No surprise in that. Um, what we did have seen in the last, since March, uh, and for all, for all the, the, the central banks that have had to you know, take pretty radical and strong action, as, as we have and others have, is that we have had to come in at times, and we had to come in at the most extreme time, which is really in the sort of second half of March, to provide um, action which addressed issues that were in the non-banking sector. 
So the threat to financial, financial market conditions at that time was, as you say, not coming out of the banking system. It was coming out more out of as particular aspects of the non-bank sector. Now, some of those, you know, frankly, we've, we have talked about in recent years, uh, both domestically and in groups like the Financial Stability Board, um, and, you know, they are, they are on the agenda, as it were. Some of them, I think, were also revealed in somewhat new perspective. Of course, traditional central bank intervention into the banking system wasn't going to work because the banking system isn't really the conduit to address the non-banking system in that It doesn't work effectively enough. And I say that because we're going to have to come back to the question, you know, there was a lot of firepower used by central banks. Absolutely the right thing to do. No question about that. We had to stabilize financial markets. My first week as governor, we faced a, a, a severe crisis to that respect. But we're going to have to come back and revisit you know, the, the effectiveness of doing that. Does it call for you know, some structural reform of the non-bank system? Does it call for some revisiting of how central banks operate to address, if, if it is in fact going to have to be the case going forward, we have to be ready to address these questions whenever such issues arise. So you're right on the banking system, but there are other issues that we're going to have to come back to. Thank you. Uh, one challenge is that uh, before the crisis, the global debt uh, ratio was even higher than it was in 2007 before uh, the last crisis. But as you said, we uh, post uh, the Great Recessionals addressed the solidity uh, of our banks. Uh, you have raised, though, uh, some concerns uh, related to insolvencies uh, in companies uh, moving forward uh, because of um, the economic uh, recession. Uh, how do you think this will um, influence uh, the next months, also for the financial institution, but also for the companies? And how can uh, we deal with that uh, if in an effective uh, way? What are the right tools? Well, that's another important issue. And I think an important learning point from, from the experience we've had in the last three months. And, and I think the way it's come to in a sense, it's come into sharp relief is that, again, you know, it's certainly true in, this, in Britain, it's true in other countries, a combination of measures from government and measures from central banks that have to be used to address the, the situation of, of the corporate sector. Now, that's not a surprise either, because you know, what, what the big reason why this recession is so, so deep and why some people say it is the most severe, certainly in the period in which we have records, is of course that it effectively involved a you know a closing down of large parts of the economy almost without without notice. Now that presents a challenge then for, for, for governments and central banks when they're designing the measures. Because the question of what you know, I take what we in the UK have done. We we essentially said we will provide support to companies and we will look through the effects of COVID on companies and we will base the sort of the decision on support particularly the sort of the general support measures we took, on the position of the company, particularly in terms of its indebtedness pre-COVID. So in terms of taking decisions on, on, on what I might call on credit standing viability, it wasn't the sort of, let's, let's look at the effect of COVID on the company and judge the, co the company post-COVID, it was let's judge the company pre-COVID. What that means is that there is a judgment about, you know, the, in a sense, the, the, the health of, the health of co corporates at, in the sort of what you might call the normal times. 
And of course, many companies passed that test, but some didn't because they were over indebted. They were always over indebted. Um, you know, they were living in a world where, frankly, that condition was, was too fragile. They got away with it in those conditions, but COVID left them seriously exposed. And I think to, to, to pick up your question, that puts into sharp relief the question of leverage and indebtedness as a sort of standing concern. Because I think the clear, I'm afraid, really very firm message to companies is, if you are operating in that situation in normal times, you're going to find yourself too vulnerable when a shock occurs, whatever that shock may be. So again, I think a big lesson coming out of the COVID experiences, which again fits with things that you know we were saying, all the central banks were saying, FSB was saying, is we've addressed leverage in the banking system, but there is an issue about leverage in the, in the corporate sector. And that issue comes to bite when you have a shock. And this is a very big shock. Last question, uh, and I think that's um, something that we at least I'm grappling with, and I mentioned it at the beginning uh, before um, interviewing uh, and discussing with the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, is that if you look at um, uh, Wall Street and uh, the stock exchanges and uh, the development there, compared to all the economic data we get these days, uh, there is a huge discrepancy between Main Street and uh, also uh, Wall Street. We today, OSD came out with these uh, numbers that it's the worst recession in 100 years. You had the World Bank uh, yesterday saying that um, the contraction uh, of uh, the emerging economies is unparalleled, haven't seen this in six decades. So, of course, it's. Uh, we, I think everyone would like to hear you speaking on a V-shaped, U-shaped, what, what to expect uh, here. <laughs> well, I always try to. I try to avoid letters because they're, you know, they're oversimplifications, as you know. I, let me let me just set out the sort of the, the stages of our thinking on it um, in, in terms of the, the the staging of this process. As I said a, in a few minutes ago, that clearly the, the lockdown was an unprecedented action in a sense, which closed parts of the part, large parts of the economies down, and that was a very sudden downswing. So the one side of it was very violent, it was deep, uh, and it was sudden. I think we, we look at sort of three, three parts to the sort of what was the, what was the, the recovery phase. Of now, the first part really hangs around the timing and sequencing of the lifting of government measures, so the lockdown-type measures, uh, and how, you know, over what time those would take effect and what sequence. I do think that when people talk about the recovery, I mean, this is where, if there is any such thing as a normal recession, which in many ways there isn't, but let me use that short term for a moment. I mean, this one will be different because there will be elements of a faster recovery because, you know, the first stage of recovery is literally lifting restrictions and allowing people to go out and do things. And, and by the way, you know, we measure at the Bank of England, we look at a very large amount of um, what we call high-frequency data, you know, stuff coming off the internet, high-frequency payments data, traffic movement data, and so on. We're avid consumers of this stuff. And we already in the UK see, and, and in other economies, in other countries, see evidence of, of, of elements of that recovery starting. So that's the first phase. 
The second phase that we look at then is to say, well, that's what governments say, but we then have to factor in how will individuals as, 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 as agents, if you like, as, as operators in the economy and society behave. And we've assumed in our scenarios that there will be a greater degree of natural caution by people than, than the literal lifting of the lockdown would suggest. In other words, the, the, the sort of the, the recovery will go on for longer because people will be naturally cautious. They will not go out to, out to events and to restaurants initially as probably as much as they would have done in the past because they will be cautious. A lot of that has to do with obviously what's outside our area of expertise, which is the evolution of COVID itself, the vaccine question, treatment questions. But we're, we, we put that in as an assumption. And then the third phase is, is what we tend to use a rather unfortunate term, but nonetheless it has meaning. How much scarring to the economy will be a product of the depth and nature of the recession that we're going through? Now, I think you know, many governments, and I'd say the UK government has done this, has adopted very sensible policies, um, so-called furloughing policy, here in the UK, I think it's very helpful in that respect. And Charles has done an excellent job on that because it will enable people to get back into work more quickly. But the big question on scarring is how much damage will there be to the economy? How many companies will not come back? How many jobs will not come back? And that may be going back to what we were saying earlier because frankly, there are companies that were just not viable uh, and can't come out of a viable state because they're indebtedness. Or it may be, of course, because our, our, all of us as consumers, our, our, you know, our behavior and patterns of consumption change, our patterns of working change, and some companies find that their business model doesn't work anymore. We, you know, we talk a lot about that and we can see some of that. We don't know how much scarring will be. I think it's reasonable to say there'll be some, but it's very hard to judge. So those are the sorts of things that, you know, the phases that we're looking at and judging what this recovery looks like. And then thereafter, I think it's down to sort of the, what you're, you're, you're in a sense, your theme of your whole work, which is, and what will the future look like? And what will investment look like in the future? How do we bring back important issues such as the, you know, the green agenda? How do we bring back the productivity agenda uh, and tie these in, as we didn't expect to do, to a recovery after a deep recession? Thank you so much, Connor. I would have loved to continue this uh, conversation. Uh, so much insight, but I learned once that you should uh, end when people want you to uh, continue. And thank you for not uh, giving us the L at least. That was my uh, interpretation, even if you don't want to use letters. Adrian, uh, after uh, these two things, uh, over to you. Um, so a big welcome to Gillian Tett um, from the Financial Times. Gillian, I know you're in the process, I think, at the moment of researching and writing a book. Um, but a year ago, you founded uh, Moral Money as part of the Financial Times's portfolio of, uh, uh, of content. And, you know, that was quite prescient because as we look at the crisis today, you know, we're faced with an economic crisis, with a social crisis, but also with very much with a moral crisis. And we look especially now, I think, at the issue of systemic racism that's really come to the fore in the past two weeks as really putting uh, corporate values on the block in terms of response. And before looking at some of the reset issues, I wondered if, if you could just share your view on whether or not we've reached a tipping point with regards to uh, corporate attitudes to this issue of systemic racism? Well, thank you very much indeed, Adrian. And 
you raise a really important point there, which is this. I have spent most of my career as a journalist for the Financial Times writing about issues that Governor Bailey was just talking about in terms of debt, financial markets, um, the behavior of the economy. And for the most part, although I'm trained as a cultural anthropologist, I kind of felt like my social and political and cultural analysis wasn't that immediately relevant to the kind of economic and corporate policy issues that I had been writing about as a journalist. The one message I want to give you today for everyone who's watching is that has changed. And you only need to think back to the response of companies right now compared to 2008 to realize that when the great financial crisis hit in 2008, for the most part, the C-suite was focused on survival and telling their investors, their shareholders, that they were going to be okay. Today, we're seeing absolutely every single C-suite that I know in America and elsewhere focused on stakeholders in the sense that they have to talk to not just their shareholders, but to their own employees, their customers, their clients, governments, and also society around them about what they're doing to respond to the crisis. And we saw that first with COVID-19, where we saw an astonishing explosion of energy amongst companies to try to deal with these issues. And we've seen this again in relation to Black Lives Matter. And I really think there is a zeitgeist shift going on, which in some ways is similar to something I saw um, at the beginning of the last decade in relation to finance, which is what the Financial Times mostly covered, in relation to things like credit derivatives, when in a sense, a huge new drive towards financial innovation was reshaping finance in a way that had been going on for several years, people hadn't quite spotted, then it began to get momentum. We at the Financial Times started covering it probably earlier than others, and then it exploded as an issue. I think what's happening in terms of the zeitgeist shift right now in relation to stakeholders is very similar. It's been developing for, for a few years. It's gradually got more momentum in the last couple of years. That's why I created more money about a year ago to try and tap into this new developing zeitgeist shift, which wasn't being properly covered. And I think the way to understand what's happening today is that this elliptical shift has suddenly crystallized and really changed the landscape in terms of what companies and investors are doing. And one other way to think about it very quickly is that people have talked for a long time about impact investing. And to my mind, that's the wrong phrase because all investing has an impact. All corporate behavior has, has an impact. The question is whether it's a good impact or a bad impact. And do people think about the impact? And they've not in the past, but in the future they will. And that will be at the heart of any great reset. I just want to follow up with you. You mentioned that, uh, you know, your background, I think you've got a PhD in, in anthropology, but your <laughs> background meant that you had some preparation for dealing with these issues. How prepared are the C-suite leaderships that you speak to, do you feel, when it comes to facing up to these issues, these issues of morality, these issues of uh, systemic change on social levels? Because they, these are not topics that are typically brought up in boardrooms. I, you asked a fantastic question, Adrian. The reason we call this moral money, and those of you who haven't seen it, this is what it looks like, 
is not because we're in any way, shape or form trying to be pious or religious or lecture people. We're simply trying to capture this this idea of impact, being good or bad and thinking about it. You could also call it, if you like, consequence-based capitalism. And I think for the most part, people have not been trained to think about that because for the last 20, 30, 40 years, macroeconomics and business has really trained people to think in tunnels, to think very narrowly focused on the task at hand, which for companies was really about shareholders and for investors was really about profits and returns. And if there's one thing that COVID has taught us, which I would argue is central to the world of cultural anthropology, which is what indeed my PhD and academic background is in, is the importance of lateral thinking, of peripheral vision, of holistic thinking. Because in a fast changing world, where we know that the models that describe the past are not going to be much used looking forward, because they don't capture things like climate change, which is a step change, or COVID-19. You have to have peripheral vision and you have to think about the consequences of what you're doing as a company or an investor or a government. And in many ways, this is a fantastically exciting time to be trying to rebuild and rethink. And frankly, also writing about it as a journalist, because suddenly people are being forced to challenge really deep-seated assumptions. And to go back to what Andrew Bailey was talking about in terms of the Bank of England, I absolutely salute what they're doing in terms of rethinking financial regulation, thinking about whether they have to look at the non-banking sector, think about debt, think about excess leverage. But as they start to think about these things at the Bank of England, they're also having to think about something which they've never considered before, which is the potential impact of climate change in terms of creating stranded assets and suddenly change the dynamic, say, of which companies can and can't survive in the future and might look over leveraged. And that's a really big shift in thinking, which, as I said before, to my mind is comparable with a type of zeitgeist shift and shift in the intellectual framework that we had to make 15 years ago when we had this dramatic wave of financial innovation, or more recently with, say, tech innovation. Yeah, I know you've got to go. I think we've got time if I look at my watch for one very quick question to you, which is how optimistic are you as you look uh, ahead of the coming months that companies will have the resources and the vision to really grapple with these very fundamental issues? Or will we see uh, a return to kind of crisis management and quarterly returns? Are we going to see some inspiring leadership? I think that's a great question. And I have to be honest with you, you know, we launched Moral Money a year ago, or just so we're actually celebrating the first anniversary next week. Um, so we launched Moral Money a year ago, um, very much as an experiment. I had no idea how it was going to take off or not take off. Um, it took off very rapidly, I'm delighted to say. And then when COVID-19 crisis hit um, in March, I have to admit my first reaction was, yikes, this is going to knock everything sideways. Nobody is going to have any time or energy or frankly the financial resources to think about these issues anymore so i was actually making contingency plans in my mind for what happened if our readership collapsed well i'm delighted to say that actually the reverse has happened that we have had such a tsunami of stories that our big problem right now is to try and make sure our newsletter doesn't turn into an encyclopedia um, every time we publish it 
And we have an absolute flurry of engagement amongst our readers because people are really passionately interested. Now, will this turn into a sustainable, thoughtful type of proactive reform vision that we desperately need to say? Hand on heart, I don't know. We're watching this very carefully and reporting it. And frankly, it comes down to what Andrew was saying about Governor Bailey, which is that essentially, you know, we have the initial recovery phase as we've essentially reopen, if you like, the reopening phase. Then we have the reflection that everyone tries to work out about the psychological shock and then the, then the longer term recovery. And it depends on how quickly that happens. But one thing to think about is that even if governments and C-suite is tempted to dash for growth now, what we've seen is that investors are demanding more. Shareholder engagement during the AGMs recently has not slowed down. Consumers appear to be demanding more, and companies' own employees are becoming increasingly sensitive to this. We don't know what that's going to last, but my best guess, and not just because I have a self-interested motive for saying this, but my best guess, it probably will. It's a fascinating time, and I salute the work of the World Economic Forum in trying to highlight these issues and promote this debate, and also everyone else is watching, because it really is extraordinarily exciting times to be trying to push this kind of reform, but also trying to be a mere journalist scribbler who's trying to describe it in ways that people can understand. Gillian, thank you so much. And we'll wish you the very best with the book and look forward to hearing more about it as, uh, as it gets written. Um, you mentioned leadership and the C-suite and the kinds of people who'll be shaping that future. And delighted to have on the line Afsane Bishloss um, of uh, Rock Creek, both the chief executive officer and the founder of Rock Creek, who's got some uh, 14 billion or so under under investment. Uh, you're also on the board of Gavi, so you've probably had more insight into the current crisis than many uh, CEOs. How much of uh, what you're doing at Rock Creek is has been derailed by the crisis, and how much of it has been accelerated? I mean, has this crisis acted? to push your work forward, or is it acted as a break, Afsane? So, Adrian, um, thank you for that great question. And uh, following right on what um, Julian was saying, what we have found, in fact, uh, post-COVID is that the interests in things that are sustainable, investments that are sustainable, investments that are impactful in a positive way, and uh, ESG has in fact been increasing. So if you look post 2020, the biggest flows in assets were to ESG type funds. And what uh, we have been doing at Rock Creek, in fact, is very much uh, investments uh, in uh, diversity, investments in um, climate related areas, in health, in education, and affordable housing. And what was really interesting, as uh, we all saw in March, is what were the companies that were really benefiting from uh, the sad situation were companies that were bringing education or health to people who obviously did not have that kind of access before. So it was whether it's the rural poor or the urban areas in developed and developing countries. So in a very paradoxical way, all the things that were called externalities by economists, all the training that we've had over many, many years um, in economics got reversed in the sense that 
the good investments were actually those who had a positive impact. Now, the negative though, I should tell you, Adrian, is that a lot of the flows we saw by the governments post-2008 go to um, the mega companies, whether it was mega finance or mega Wall Street, uh, mega Main Street. And I think the same sort of thing has been happening, although there was a lot more that went to uh, of the nine trillion um, that has been injected into global economies has gone into various different socioeconomic groups uh, with large uh, part of that has still gone into mega companies. So when we look at stock markets and we see five companies go up in terms of stock value where uh, 490 have actually gone down despite all the hoopla, uh, it tells you a lot. There, that issue of inequality is very much with us. That issue of lack of diversity is still very much with us. And as uh, you kindly mentioned at Rock Creek, those are areas where we have tried to invest in. Thank you so much. And uh, as an Iranian American, how have you been touched by what you've seen in terms of the huge response in protest and anger uh, on the issue of systemic racism? Has that been something that that's uh, impacted you and, and Rock Creek particularly? Um, you know, it's, uh, I think all of us have experienced racism at different points in our lives for different reasons. And one of the things is that um, at Rock Week, what we've done is actually invest uh, over six uh, billion since we started Rock Week uh, in 2003 in uh, firms that are started by women, by African-Americans, by Latinx and um, Asians and other minorities. And what we found is that we actually found higher returns from these groups and I think the best thing, um, as uh, Gillian was saying, is really the power of data and sharing that data with the other stakeholders in the economy and showing that, in fact, diversity does pay. In fact, ESG does pay. And I think that's how I have felt both uh, in my role as a founder of Rock Week, but also given my own origins. Afsani, thank you so much. And stay with us as we uh, carry on the conversation. Um, I want to turn to Beijing and to uh, Professor Zhu. Just uh, a question to you, Professor. China was first into this crisis uh, from a health perspective, but it's also obviously uh, the first country to emerge uh, from it. And I wondered what your reflections were as China's economy begins to uh, restore its kind of motive uh, forces. Uh, what are the kind of things we should be looking out for globally? And what is, what's the impact been most noticeably as you emerge on China's economy? Thanks for having me, Adrian. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, I was actually uh, in Geneva, I mean, in uh, Davos for when the COVID-19 broke. And then I spent about a month in Europe before returning back to China. And I would have to tell, based on my personal experience, that well, I think people's perception and experience with the pandemics is highly dependent on what one is going through right at the moment. So in some sense, I think China is fortunate uh, in being one of the first to come out of the COVID-19 situation. On the other hand, I think China is experimenting with the different stages of the pandemics I mean, on behalf of the rest of the world. And in terms of the economy, I think it is encouraging to uh, notice that China's eco economy 
is on its proper track of recovery. I think in terms of both uh, the export, the investment, and the domestic consumption, I think things are on pretty good track. That being said, I would like to highlight, uh, I think, a very delicate uh, difference which China is going through than many of the other countries which are still fighting against the pandemics. I think even given that we are keeping the COVID-19 under control for most of the country, I think China is still trying very, very hard to strike the balance between economic recovery and the fight against the pandemics. I think this may be an ongoing fight uh, that's going to uh, last for uh, many months, maybe even years in the in the foreseeable future. So this is something I think China is doing very uh, diligently, but I think it's, it's trying very hard to strike the balance. On one hand, we need the growth to put things back onto the right track. On the other, if we do this too uh, aggressively, we could run the risk of having the COVID-19 coming back again. So I think this is going to be a long lasting challenge that's going to face the policymakers around the world. And going back to its implication to the global economy, I think I just want to uh, uh, highlight one observation. That is, different countries go into uh, the pandemics at different stages. China is probably uh, two months ahead of the rest of the country for now, and which means that China's economy is right on track. However, I think I want to uh, bring some of my observations on the ground in the sense that well, many of Chinese companies are at first facing the problem of not having enough workers coming back to work. But then later on, we're facing a different challenge, which is, well, even after the workers come back to the factory, we do not have enough parts or enough support from the supply chain, as Prime Minister pointed out earlier. And now that all the parts and workers are back in factory, we're facing another yet new, new challenge, which is the aggregate demand from the rest of the world is now sagging. So I think this is creating a different challenge in a way that what different countries are going through at different stages of the, the pandemics. And now we cannot really share the empathy towards each other. So this is why I think we should have the trust and have the goodwill trying to reach out to work with other countries as, as much as we can and as, uh, uh, as actively as we could. Professor, thank you so much for that, and do stay with us. Um, I want to bring in uh, from uh, LUG in Poland, uh, Eric Wotkowski, and I apologize, Eric, if I've mangled your name. I'm having it uh, spoken down my ear. Um, I just wanted your question for uh, Professor Afsane and for also for my colleague, Sadia Zahidi. I, I pointed out some, uh, some uh, I think, uh, three questions, but uh, my main question would be uh, uh, to the professor also, but maybe as considering the fast recovery of of, uh, of China, how how what we may expect considering uh, a last report of uh, World Bank uh, about the recession that we may expect in two point uh, five point two uh, GDP, world GDP. Uh, until the end of this year and how fast we can see the recovery for upcoming uh, for upcoming months. Thanks for that question. Um, and perhaps, uh, Professor, just quickly, how, um, how much faith should we place in, in those uh, estimates that we've heard from uh, 
the the World Bank because I think uh, the World Bank will probably be relying on China to play a big role in helping meet those those goals. Well, I think I would like to make three points very clear. One is I think it is a very fluid situation. Everything that we're forecasting for now is highly dependent on how the pandemics plays out in the next few months. The second is I think China is trying very hard, trying to、uh, bring the growth back to、uh, not only its own domestic economy but the entire world. Three, I think it is very important that we keep in mind that China has done a great deal of help、uh, after the global financial crisis in 2008. So it is a little bit difficult for China to bring out as aggressive and a campaign or stimulus packages as we did last last time, just because of how much we have done in the past. But that being said. I think I am cautiously optimistic with how China is going to do in the next six months for the remainder of the year. So I think the official forecast for China's growth is 1.2 percent from the World Bank, and I think China is probably going to deliver on the bright side of the forecast. Afsana, you、uh, deal with a lot of、uh, these kinds of decisions in terms of investment. How confident are you、uh, looking at these World Bank estimates that the global economy is actually going to reach these levels of growth that are being predicted? So, Adrian, for full disclosure, I worked at the World Bank for a long time, and、um, I think these numbers are generally good. Also. Uh, I have to highlight, though, that most forecasts end up being not quite correct. That's why sort of scenarios work out better than forecasts. So、um, did, I remember when I was at the World Bank, looked a lot at our past forecasts, as have done many, many companies.、Uh, I think we are、um, moving in the right direction. I think what I would say is that probably this recovery、um, will. Initially, be a sort of look fast, just because if you go down fifty、uh, percent and you come up, the,、uh, you know, twenty percent, it may sound a lot, but the math is,、um, you know,、uh, basically half of that. So, I think initially we're going to have、um, little faster growth as we saw with China, but then as we see in China, things get a little bit slowed down because there is not necessarily trust in people coming out and spending more money on weekends. They might go to work because they have to, but they may not go out、uh, to spend money or to,、uh, you know, do other kinds of activities. So the growth might, in fact, end up being a little slower,、um, unfortunately. Thank you for that.、Um, I want to turn to Sadia now for、um, to talk about、uh, a what the forum is doing in this space, but b we have a question coming in from Korea. Asking about the incredible impact this crisis has had on jobs, which is another side of the real economic、uh, hurt that people are feeling.、Um, and I think we have、uh, the person who wants to put that question with us now, which is Cornelius Kalenzi. Cornelius, you're with the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution in Seoul, I believe.、Uh, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to ask this very important question.、Uh, even before COVID-19. The numbers for the jobs were going down because of automation, because of AI. A lot of studies were predicting that、uh, lots of lots of people are going to lose their jobs. And now, with COVID-19, we've lost so many jobs、uh, in a lot of countries. So, to the experts out there,、uh, especially the governor of、uh, the Bank of England, what are the predictions? Are jobs going to come back? 
Thank you for that question. And well, the the expert from the World Economic Forum point of view is the person leading all of our work in the area, Sadia Zahidi. I'm going to turn to you, Sadia, first, perhaps to address that. Sure. Thank you, Adrian. Um, I'll, I'll address that question and then perhaps come back to the, the broader piece that you were asking mm. me about. Um, on the jobs question, Cornelius, you're absolutely right that there were a number of automation and digitalization trends already underway that were already likely to disrupt jobs. And I think what this crisis is likely to do is actually make that opportunity for reaction, uh, the, that window for opportunity, even shorter than it was before, because a lot of the digitalization trends are likely to accelerate in this current crisis, in addition to the job losses from the structural change that has occurred. So what we need to be focusing on is not only stranded assets, but also the stranded human capital. Think very hard about the reskilling and upskilling that needs to happen to make sure people have the right opportunities and skills to then be able to move on to the next um, roles and positions that are available to them. And I also do want to add a note of optimism. I think we've also seen this crisis. What are the essential roles, whether they relate to education, whether they relate to um, uh, to digitalization and uh, data and AI related roles, whether they relate to care roles. So there are also a lot of job opportunities that are coming up or in or uh, relate to the green economy. So there are a number of growth areas, but we need to make that migration from the old set of skills to the new set of skills. And that's where a lot of governments will need to focus their efforts in addition to employers. Thank you for that. And perhaps very briefly, I can bring in Professor Zhu and just uh, ask, China's uh, economy is probably one of the most automated economies in the world now. You're certainly one of the biggest importers of industrial robots. Um, what's been the impact on jobs as far as China's concerned of the current pandemic? I think the impact on jobs are very severe and we're all feeling that. I mean, from manufacturing to service to uh, food and ent entertainment, I think this is a very big blow to China's economy. And I think the government is adjusting very quickly in the following two senses. Yes, I think China is a leader in automation and the China is still pushing very hard, trying to use modern technology to replace some of the uh, manufacturing works. But that being said, I think China is doing two things at the very same time. One is we're putting a lot of emphasis on creating jobs. This year, as many of you have probably seen from the two sessions, we're no longer setting a GDP growth target. Uh, instead, we're setting a target for job creation and job maintenance. I think this is one thing which is highly dependent on government's policy. The second is going back to uh, our colleagues saying about what well, the government is also trying to help workers to retool their skills, trying to prepare in light of the COVID-19 situation, trying to take this opportunity to retool re re their skill set to find and create a new job. So, so in that regard, I think even though China's growth is much lower than originally forecast, I think we are confident on China will be creating enough jobs for not absorbing just the fresh graduates, but also for uh, retooling those uh, people who are heavily impacted by the pandemics. Afsane, what uh, can investors do in the face of what seems like an incredible challenge posed by the unemployment that's been caused by the pandemic to date? I think uh, working with small businesses all over the world and the entrepreneurs is going to be really, really important. But I think Sadia also touched on uh, the green economy. The very interesting thing, Adrian, is that in fact, if you look at, uh, for example, solar and wind energy, they are quite um, 
um, effective in terms of increasing employment, just in the US itself, maybe by a factor of seven. Uh, so maybe 350,000 people who have been working in, um, in the solar and wind versus 50,000 in oil. And if you were to expand um, green energy just in the US, let alone uh, China, India, the rest of the emerging world where the largest amount of marginal growth in energy is coming, the employment effect quite uh, is quite large. Uh, the retooling, I think, as Sadia said, is really, really important. But again, let's look at the emerging markets where growth and um, employment will be increasing over time. I think there is a potential for leapfrogging in things like health and education so that um, the, that intersection with technology will help bring access to, to health and uh, education to a larger group of people. Thank you. Um, Sadia, can I just turn to you as, as we draw to a close, just to bring us up to speed on where the forums work in this area is and the kind of areas that you and your team and your colleagues and the people partnering with you are looking at. Sure, thank you, Adrian. Um, with the, the overarching umbrella of the Great Reset, um, one of the critical themes that we've been discussing today is very much about um, the economic recovery and the new trajectory of growth. We will be doing five areas of um, work uh, along with our partners. One is trying to define a new dashboard for the new economy. We need to take into account intangibles that have not been taken into account before. We also need to take into account a new way of thinking about productivity and about social and environmental criteria. So essentially a national version of what are currently corporate metrics around ESG. A second aspect is we will be looking at um, rebuilding and the sustainable transitioning of traditional sectors that have created jobs, growth and prosperity in the past. There needs to be a sustainable and inclusive transition for a number of those sectors. A third element is developing the kind of frontier markets where we don't right now have well-functioning systems, whether those are markets for data or whether those are markets for health and education, as Afsane just pointed out. Fourth, um, helping governments um, in various countries with public-private collaboration on building that new economy and shaping their recovery. We have 40 years of history with our competitiveness work, and we've begun to work with a number of economies in Europe and Asia, and we'll be expanding to other parts of the world to support them in that transition. And then finally, fifth, completely rethinking the tools of economic policy. I think you've heard that from a number of the speakers today, whether that is fiscal policy and public spending priorities, whether that's monetary policy, competition policy, there is a lot of rethinking that will need to be done and we'll be doing that under the Great Reset umbrella. The second element is around the social contract. And I think we'll be taking that up in a future discussion around the Great Reset, but it is very much about jobs, about inclusion, about education and getting skills and safety nets right. Thanks. Sadia, thank you so much. And just to draw today's uh, Great Reset Dialogue to a conclusion, I want to turn over to uh, the Forum's President, Berger Brenda. Berger. Thank you, Adrian. Uh, this has been uh, a great uh, panel. Of course, there are uh, economics is not the exact science, but I think there are great ideas here that we can bring forward. And we have something very concrete on our table. We have nine trillion now in extra stimuli. And those should also be allocated to skills, um, lower carb, low carbon economy, 
uh, we should also make sure uh, that we uh, get a more sustainable uh, economy. So there are huge opportunities here, and we can also leapfrog when it comes to digitalization. We have seen more digitalization being accelerated in three months than you maybe would have seen in a decade. That's why we're also meeting like this, but we need to make sure that this digitalization also works in the favor of the emerging uh, economies. Because know where you're based is not so important. It is what you know and how you can contribute. So in principle, it should also be a great opportunity uh, for emerging economies. And let's make it that through the Great Reset. Thank you for joining us and welcome back on our next call. Thank you to a great panel.